Welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. With me today is Jordan Smith, owner of Royal River Botanicals in Maine. Thank you very much for joining me today, Jordan. Thanks for having me. All right, before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach me at david at Cannabis Equipment News with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. Jordan, I always like to start with a little bit of background. So what was it that brought you to the cannabis industry? Uh, it was a passion that I had from a really young age. I think I started smoking cannabis when I was maybe 14. Uh, I ended up going to school while I was still in high school. I went to school for botany and horticulture, uh, got into the horticulture side of the business. Uh, eventually, you know, and those were back in the black market days or traditional market days. Um, I was involved in that capacity for quite some time. And then eventually um, our main launched their medical program. Well, it was launched in 1996 or 1999, but actually launched in such a way where there was an affirmative defense for patients and caregivers before that it was very like it was very iffy you could still get arrested as a patient or a caregiver because there wasn't any real designation forms or medical cards to speak of um so around 2010 my wife and i became caregivers uh, we've been operating in the medical market since then uh, back then, it was really uh, a small group of people. We were only able to help um, you know, five patients at a time. Uh, weren't able to actually sell product. It was more of like a, you could get remuneration for your service to grow those people's plants for them. So it was kind of it's kind of at the heart of the medical program in Maine. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of things have changed, but that, you know, the, the medical industry in Maine was built upon the backs of the people who were doing that in the beginning. Um, so what was it? One thing, one thing that we hear a lot is that it's hard to get legacy people that operated in the legacy market into, uh, the legal side of the business. So did you have any apprehension at first or what was it where you were just like, you know what, we're going to strike out and try doing the legal medical marijuana um, path. So I had, I had some legal troubles uh, probably around 10 years previous to the medical program, actually uh, having those affirmative defenses and I'd been out of the industry for several years at a, uh, a hardscape company and also did a lot of sculpture, other artwork. Um, so when they, uh, when the program started in a way that was something that you could actually navigate, 
I was excited to get back into it and I, I kind of, I jumped right back into it. Um, both feet got involved in the politics of it. Um, spent a lot of time at the Capitol, uh, trying to help create a program that was equitable and fair and, and had a low, uh, low hurdle of entry. Um, that was really inclusive. So that's something that I'm still trying to maintain for people, uh, especially the people that have been in it since that time. A lot of them are really getting pushed out by much larger operators. And now we've got uh, multi-state operators moving in. And since 2016, we've had the adult use program um, and that's been uh, a lot of butting heads with these really business-minded organizations versus these people who are like truly passionate about cannabis. Um, so there was a bit of parting ways in the industry when adult use came online. Um, some people operate in both markets. Uh, there's a lot of like one or the other going on. Um, so I, I'm a big defender of, of these really small growers who, who we wouldn't have either of these programs without. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons I had first reached out to you was kind of um, based on some of the stuff that was said and, and, I wanted to bring some more context to the the testing side of things and um, and what that really means and what it means to different people. No, I understand that. Um, in I definitely want to get into the testing as well, but I'd like to learn a little bit more about your business when you were starting out. What was it like with those first five patients? You know, like could you believe? You know, like. Hey, we're treating people with cannabis, and could you believe that was actually happening? It was a little bit surreal in the beginning, and I think everybody kind of was like looking over their shoulder, <laughs> especially those of us that operated in the traditional market before. Um, and I know there were instances like we had patients that were still harassed by police, uh, even though they had their medical card and and. The police, I, I recall even to one of our patients, you know, he's like, oh, I have my medical card. And the cop's like, well, I don't believe in that. And like, you're still like, we're still going to write you up for it. And uh, so it was, it was an interesting time uh, because there was still, you know, a lot of people that were really stuck in that like cannabis is really bad and people that are involved in cannabis are bad and people that use cannabis are bad. And there's, you know, I think that's still the case to some degree, but a lot, uh, a lot less so at this point. Um, but it was a really, it was an interesting time that, that transition, um, the early years of the transition from, illegal to legal and like all those overlapping things and we were really restricted again like with the five patients we could only grow a very small number of plants um 
And it wasn't something that someone could really make a big business out of in any way. So it was almost something that you had to do on the side. Uh, I mean, prices were like the product itself was more valuable back then, which helped. Um, but it was, you know, it was a, a lot of the people that got into it were doing it out of a sense of compassion for the people that, that really needed it. Um, and we were, you know, we were really happy and fulfilled to be able to help those people. Have you always been Royal River Botanicals? You know, is it, uh, was that the written name of the original company? No. Well, when we first started, we were Connoisseur Compassion. That was never like officially incorporated or anything. But in 2016, we incorporated as Royal River. Um, and kind of, it kind of happened <laughs> out of necessity because we started to build this reputation just as caregivers and didn't really have a business name to speak of. And, uh, there, uh, in Maine, there's, well, we live on the Royal River, the house we live on now and the house we lived on before this. And also when I was really young, we, I used to grow, you know, like gorilla outdoor grow along the Royal River, which ran through the center of the town I grew up in. So that name, it's a throwback to that, but it's also... Uh, there's like 80 companies with the name Royal River uh, in their name in the in the like surrounding towns that that we live in. Uh, so it was almost like I didn't really want to stick out. I wanted to do something that was just kind of almost intentionally boring for the name of the company, <laughs> just yeah. so it kind of fit in. Yeah, you don't don't want to draw like unnecessary scrutiny, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't want like weed in the name or like greenness or whatever. And that those are all fine. I've, I I don't have I don't have a problem with anybody's branding or what they want to do. Um but yeah, that's kind of where that that came from. Um What do so you guys yeah, do at the just, company? So we have a Fairly small grow operation. There's 27 flowering lights. Um, we have maybe 40 something varieties that we work with. And we kind of cycle through those. Uh, we have a handful that we're like have been really well known for um, since we started uh, in 2010, and uh, so those we still do quite a bit of each of those and then we'll do a larger variety you know like um you know we're often doing multiple strains at a time in each flower room just to have that variety and having that here like um in this market it's really important now to have new things to offer people and to have variety to offer people to keep them coming back uh, as opposed to, you know, in the past you could get away with, you know, growing 
just one kind or two kinds and and it would all you know it would all be pre-sold and um it's a lot easier in some ways but yeah now it's it we've had to adapt um to having a bigger offering just to keep people engaged because there's so much competition what are uh what are the handful of strains that you're known for so we have this kosher kush cut uh from seed from dna genetics from 2011 that's like that's by far our most popular um, strain that we grow. Um, we used to grow a lot of sour diesel, uh, but it's it takes so much longer than a lot of the other stuff we do. We've cut back on that quite a bit, um, and the kosher is it's very sour and skunky. It's like a lot of the things that sour diesel is. Um, and then some, so, um, a lot of that clientele really likes that. At what age, when did you realize you had the gift to grow? I'm sorry. At what age did you realize you had the gift to grow? Just because sometimes a lot of people try in this industry and this one in particular is pretty elusive to some people. Um, You know, it happened over time. Like early on, it was really this like illicit underground trade of information. So it's learning things through different people. And there was there was less products on the market. You know, like you had Fox Farm and General Hydroponics and like a couple other things. So, you know, and there was some stuff from uh, different forums uh, going around. So like, you know, back then, like everybody was doing, you know, like Fox Farm or like Fox Farm with some other like worm castings and compost. And then, um, uh, back guano and, and all these, it was a much, it was mostly organic centric and, um, and that was kind of the standard for a long time for a lot of people and not when you know whereas now there's just like there's so many different things and i think that um yeah you either you, you either have an aptitude for it or you don't i i mean i did like i said i went to school for horticulture and botany um most of that didn't really apply to growing cannabis i found out like i the reason i went was to learn more about growing cannabis but a lot of it botany is like mostly learning latin and then uh horticulture um has a lot to do with um drainage and hardscaping well i've <laughs> well that's that's what I've heard from a lot of people that had operated in the legacy market, right? Is that there just was no, you know, there were no universities doing studies. There were no research papers to rely on. It was mostly word of mouth, what worked previously and how that would evolve with the next crop. How, uh, how did it work for you in terms of evolving as a grower when there was a lack of information and how have you evolved 
in your new professional capacity. And is there an, is there better information out there now? Uh, no. Yes and no. There's mo- there's a lot more information now. Um, I think it was a, a, a lot simpler back then because it started as a small group of people willing to take a risk and take it on. And then if you could gain the trust of those people, they'd teach you what they knew and so on and so forth. So it was like everything was bought with clout there and like including genetics, like you couldn't buy, like, I mean, you could buy, sometimes you buy cuttings or whatever, but if you wanted like an exclusive strain, like you had to earn that by earning somebody's trust. It, it wasn't like go online and order like right now, like you go online, you can order 50 different elite cuttings of whatever. And, uh, it was completely different back then. It was all, um, it was a lot more work as far as earning the trust of people and then kind of like in a, almost like these apprenticeship type scenarios where they'd take you under their wing and they'd show you, you know, this is what I do and this is what I do. And, um, and I think there was more consistency with what those things were based on the number of people doing it and the number of products available. Um, and I think we see in some cases, like we've seen as the industry has grown, people moving away from that, like building really nice soil and trying to use the best ingredients possible to grow the best cannabis possible. Cause that's like, everybody was really focused on doing the best they possibly could. Cause that was like what we're all really passionate about it. And then the more and more it became a business and the more and more people who are interested in profit versus passion, that's where we see all these like salt-based fertilizers. I won't name brands. I don't want to alienate anybody, but they're all, I mean, they're all the same. Like if you do research on um, formulating nutrient solutions, like, more or less it's the same ingredients make up the majority of salt-based fertilizers. So we saw this drift into uh, commercial horticulture-based practices um, in hydroponics and um, the highest return on investment. And, and we've seen the quality of the product fall because of that. And then we've seen the value of the product fall because of that. And it's been, you know, it is, it's a race to the bottom in a lot of cases. Some people have held true to their roots and, you know, we still grow in soil and we still use, uh, you know, organic inputs and everything. And uh, we don't really, compromise on our prices um we've we've gone down like a little bit but a lot of people are really like really gone down a lot in their pricing and uh they're 
and they kind of did it to themselves. Are you able to maintain a competitive advantage with completely organic um, input materials? Like, is that something that you can market to stand out in the industry? Or is it still right now kind of a race to the bottom? Well, I mean, I will say we, we, not a hundred percent of our inputs are organic, but, um, uh, like for instance, we have to, we have really bad water. So we have to run on reverse osmosis water and we have to remineralize that. And that what we use to do that is an organic. And, um, but the, uh, the approach is, is the same. Um, I'm sorry. Can you repeat the yeah the no, question? Uh, yeah. So I was uh, basically curious about growing. Is yours a premium product based on the way you're growing, and have you been able to stand out and maintain a competitive advantage while you know others are kind of racing to the bottom when it comes to price? Um. Sh- yes. Um. But it's not. Uh, that's not like a promise. Like having a, a product that's organic isn't a promise that you're going to maintain a higher value because it also has to be good right? <laughs> and it has to be something that people enjoy and like burn clean. And like it, it has to do all these other things. And then also um, having some sort of reputation helps. You know, we've got a fairly decent reputation in the state. Um, so I think that it it definitely helps, and it helps us, you know, keep our prices up a little bit, but it's not the – it's only a piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So how is the – market in Maine evolved ever since you said, you know, you had mentioned MSOs are coming into the space. Is it in one thing we know about Maine is there seems to be more of a clear divide between the medical side and the rec side of the business. So is the MSOs influence strictly on the recreational side or are they starting to have a heavy influence in the medical side as well? Um, They lobby pretty hard against medical uh a really good example is last year um i think they ended up finding out this was probably ill-advised but there was an adult use industry group and again i'm not going to name like the, the particular businesses that were involved but they take they took out an ad and uh what the ad said was main medical cannabis isn't tested for dangerous things like fentanyl and uh as you probably know like no cannabis is tested for fentanyl and so it was kind of ridiculous because they're they're making this claim and counting on the fear of consumers to come to them but if you (laughs) were to ask them if they tested their stuff for fentanyl, obviously the answer is no. So we have these like really toxic um, claims being made by certain 
industry groups and and there's they're always at the capitol they're always lobbying to to take the market share uh, from the medical program and up until very recently medical has outperformed financially the adult use um, and what's happened is I mean it's been this kind of perfect storm of falling prices and rising utility costs and propaganda and all of this and we've had we had 3,000 caregivers last year. Now there's less than 2,000. So that's a big part of why the um, there's been that shift as far as how much revenue they're making per year. Mm. So it's working on some degree, um, but we still but medical still is where it's at for a lot of people, and generally you're you're not going to find the level of care and quality in the adult use market as you are in the medical market. Is the difference, is the difference because you have a personal relationship with your patients that is unrivaled in the recreational market, in your opinion? I think that's a huge part of it is we've we've had all this time to build these relationships with customers and um, as far as locals go the we have the lion's share of the customers adult use is they're uh, they're sucking up a lot of the tourists a they don't usually they don't have their med cards um so that's that's a huge part of it um people we do have reciprocity so if people have their medical card in another state um they can buy they can purchase here so those people are definitely shopping in medical but we have um yeah i mean time will tell what's going to happen in the future it's we, and we keep having like that ad I mentioned with the fentanyl thing. And then we've just had this recent um, kind of media campaign with the Office of Cannabis Policy doing all this off-the-shelf testing and then, you know, claiming um, these really high failure rates for the medical program and then saying... You know, just like, just really, they just keep driving home, like, adult use is tested and medical isn't tested. And it's just, it's not true because a lot of people do test in the medical program. A lot of that data is, is, um, it's incorrect because what they did was they took off the shelf samples from, the medical program and they compared those numbers with self-sampled tests from adult use so i don't know if you saw i sent you an article before our meeting yeah. about what happened in massachusetts which is and this plays this is a great example of why these numbers 
are flawed and why this data is flawed and why it's like really inappropriate for OCP to release it. So what that study showed, because obviously other people can't see the article I just sent you, uh, they did an off-the-shelf audit of all these products in Massachusetts. And these are all products that are have already been tested by a lab. They've been approved for sale. They're on the shelf. And they found that 26% of those products ended up actually failing testing in a secret shopper campaign. So um, the what OCP did and the data they presented really wasn't apples to apples comparison. It's much it's it's more likely that the numbers would paint a much different picture if they did an off-the-shelf audit of both programs at the same time, and so then at the same time, and then compared that data. So, and I understand that. Like, uh, I know that Nova did a study as well with the uh, they took fourteen hundred medical samples and thirty-two hundred adult use samples, um, and you know, and in their study, they found like almost a twenty-one percent failure rate in medical samples and only a 3.8% failure rate in adult use. So, and I mean, what's causing that kind of discrepancy in your opinion? Uh, Remediation, x-ray, ozone, and uh, gamma radiation. Yeah. And it's that in the recreational side, they're remediating. I mean, that 3% that they're saying is like, that's, that's within the margin of error of a lot of this equipment. So it's really, I find it hard to believe that the number is that low. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I've, I have talked to Chris uh, Altimore a fair amount, and I think his, I think it, part of his intention of that statement that was taken out of context is like people are bringing their product in to actually get tested from the medical program. Mm-hmm. 20%, um, if you account for yeast and mold failures, is not a very high rate. It's actually um, pretty standard, yeah. depending, on, depending on the procedures that they use. And that's why a lot of states, uh, California, they switched from a total yeast and mold to using PCR to test for uh, certain strains of aspergillus. Um, some states are are switching totally to a mycotoxin test. Uh, Oregon did away with total yeast and mold and aspergillus testing. They're moving to a mycotoxin. Uh, New York has, they haven't eliminated the yeast and mold testing, but they have... Um, made it so there's no limit so basically you could have you can have product that's 250 times what the allowable limit is here in maine and you can still put it on the shelf and sell it you just have to put a sticker on it that says um there's this much yeast and mold in here so a lot of the data from testing that we see directly correlates to the testing procedures that are used to achieve that data. Um, and, and yeah, the yeast and mold is the biggest one. Um, and every, every market as it matures, 
uh, tends to eliminate that test from their panel because it fails so much product and um, just yeast and mold fails can cause 20% plus failure rate. Um, and, and again, you know, you've got these uh, larger companies remediating their product so that they can pass this test, which is, a, again, a, a, basically it's a pointless test because it measures every yeast and every type of yeast and mold, most of which are not harmful to humans. So it's it's was put in there as an overabundance of caution and it's been proven you know over and over not to be a good measure of safety and it really it really messes up things for especially for people like us in Maine where where there's these huge uh, apparent discrepancies but the it doesn't actually have anything to do with the product it has to do with the way the product is processed or tested right so in your opinion what does an ideal testing landscape look like for the medical program in maine so Uh, there are certain reasons I can't speak to this in detail because um, there's certain agendas I'm working on. <laughs> this is a little complicated. So, it, in a in a nutshell, though, if first of all, I'll explain something, which is we're not. Medical is not going to have mandatory testing. It's it's not going to happen this year or next year. It may, and it, it's probably going to happen eventually. So my hope is that by the time it is mandated, if it is, that we can learn from these other states that have had to make all these adjustments in order to even um, keep their programs afloat. So I can say I'm, I, I'm very much against um, the mandatory testing as it stands presented by OCP because um, I'll tell you the biggest reason. Uh, each, uh, a full adult use panel is about $600. So we've got a lot of really small operators um, you know, I'll try to give you like a quick example. So say like some of these people only have, are grow literally growing like six lights. So say they're growing two types under each light, which is absolutely not unheard of. That could be four types under each. Um, a lot of people are growing literally one plant of each variety. Uh, and the way that the AU panel is set up which is what the director of OCP will want to see mirrored for medical. Um, 
basically the cost of the testing is more than the value of the product for a lot of these individuals. So literally, it, if they were to mandate it the way that they're proposing, it would put all of these small growers out of business. And those are the people that started this program and the, whose shoulders this program was built upon. And not just the medical program, the adult use program too, because medical is what paved the way for adult use. And like, and and us in the medical program were made a lot of promises when these adult use laws came online. We were supposed to get preferential treatment. We were supposed to get the first licenses. And then we have these big companies come in and they're like, well, that's not fair. Like we should get this, that, or the other thing. And like, we've all been just left behind basically. Um, I mean, in retrospect, I'm glad because uh, I'd hate to be a part of the adult use program right now. The taxes are so high um, that it's almost impossible to navigate unless you have, you know, 400 lights and you're using the cheapest nutrients and you're making ads about fentanyl being in medical product and like, it's it's ter it's really it's so it's not like it's not like AU is like stoked right now either. Like everybody's getting fucked by the Office of Cannabis Policy and by mm -hmm. the state. Mm -hmm. Um well, and go ahead. No, I mean, isn't that isn't that how any industry starts? Is basically there are a small few or you know, uh there are a number of people that kind of built the foundation of the industry, but then they have to evolve as the industry grows right? or kind of fall along the wayside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is America and, uh, you know, I have, I have peers who have, um, you know, like got into the adult use and they're doing pretty well with it. Um, I think this industry is very unique um, compared to a lot of other industries, but though I, I absolutely understand those parallels being made. Um, personally, I, I feel like concessions should be made to the people that, that paved the way for it. And, and uh, um, were those part of the promises that you were mentioning? Like, were you promised that medical growers were going to get first right at some of those adult use licenses? And then what happened there where uh, those promises weren't, you know, held up? It just didn't happen. And we're not sure what happened with that specifically. I think that what there was likely some sort of threat of a lawsuit or whatever from one of these larger operators saying, oh, well, that's not fair if you're going to give these guys first rights because like everybody should have an equal opportunity to enter the program. It's like all these like social equity programs you see pop up whenever a new AU uh, industry comes online in different States. And then you, and then you see the MSOs come in and they're like, well, actually we're going to sue you 
and like like what just happened in New York with all the card um, licenses. So you had people who had previous drug offenses for cannabis were actually supposed to get preferential treatment in the initial licensing for the stores. But what happened was this group of veterans decided that they were supposed to be part of this group of people who deserve to get these first licenses. But that wasn't actually what was happening. Like they were backed by these huge MSOs and, and those veterans became a vehicle for these companies to sue the state and eliminate these card licenses. And it happens everywhere because these, you know, billionaires come in and they, they sue the state or they, they just use all these unsavory methods to kind of take over. And, uh, and again, it's, you know, it's, that's capitalism and I understand that happens. And like, there's a lot of hostile takeovers in every industry. Um, let's say I hate to see it happen to my own and I hate to see it happen to my friends. Like I have friends that have lost their houses, lost their businesses, lost everything because of the way this is all played out. And, uh, it's been really hard watching my peers like fall victim to it. And, um, and I know like nobody's, nobody's doing great. And they're like always trying to squeeze a little bit more out of us and trying to basically a lot of <laughs> state agencies and individuals and AU special interests that are trying to eliminate the medical program. And they're doing, unfortunately they're doing a pretty decent job of it. So you have absolute control over the cannabis market in Maine, adult use and medical. How do you run it? Like if I were in the position of OCP. Yeah. You run the show. How do you, how do you make it so medical and adult use go to market with uh, a safe product and make it so it's equitable enough so that way, you know, people can stay happy? All right. So I would change the tax structure, eliminate the excise tax on growers, make it, um, I'd make it so that medical producers can sell into the adult use market. Um, and, you know, in that case, I think that some level of testing would be appropriate if, you know, if everything in adult use is tested then, and you want to sell into that market, then maybe at that point be subject to testing. I think that testing in general needs to be complete, completely revamped. The um, total use and mold tests need to be thrown out the window. Um, the, the way a lot of the other tests are done, um, 
this again gets into another project I'm working on that I can't go into a lot of detail on, but I can tell you that there's some huge redundancies in the testing procedure. And a lot of the most expensive tests are done multiple times um, in the case of batches that contain multiple strains. And, and that's a huge cost. I don't care which market you're in. Like I sympathize with, with the AU and uh, medical people in that regard. So making testing accessible, affordable, and making it make sense and actually uh, represent public safety, not just um, a fear-based misunderstanding of what testing should be based on input from the wrong people. So um, I think that I think there should be lower hurdles for people that if they want to go from medical to adult use, I don't think that should be so hard to do. I think that the track and trace, like especially metric is a scam. Like it, people like I've talked to tons of people, like it doesn't like it's another fake sense of security like metric doesn't actually work it's it's you can cheat on metric it's all like all the input is controlled by the people who are inputting the information yeah. um so you know i'd like to see it treated more like the craft beer industry you know like reasonable regulations that aren't gonna you know put most people out of business. Um, so, so yeah, in the adult use, having a flat, I, I like what Massachusetts is doing with like a 20% flat rate uh, sales tax. Versus a 10% sales um, flour plus a hundred dollars a pound for trim plus $25 a pound for fresh frozen flour. Like it's cr like the amount of tax is crazy. And, um, I'm going to stop you right there for a second. Could you start over with where you say, I like what Mas what Massachusetts is doing because you broke up right as you said that. Oh, so just the way they're doing, I like what Massachusetts is doing tax wise with a flat rate sales tax versus putting such a big burden on the growers with this giant amount of excise tax. Um, I just think it makes more sense. And it, and it, because our excise tax is by weight, like whether your pound is worth $2,000 or it's worth $500, you still have to pay $330 in excise tax. So having like a, a flat rate, sales tax that's put on the customer and like if prices need to adjust to um make that more feasible like but we have that room to do that because we're not paying all these crazy other taxes i i like that model better um and we already have a 10 percent sales tax so like 
do away with the excise tax, add a little bit to the sales tax. Um, it's fair. It's a lot more fair for everyone. And that's what I think anyway. In, is the, it, in the adult use program. Is, isn't part of the issue that it's kind of each state on an island trying to figure out how to run regulations? Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know, I guess I'm constantly surprised how state to state, the regulators can look at what's working at another state and then just kind of like change it up just a little bit, but not seemingly try to continue to improve upon what worked elsewhere. And I don't know, do you have any insight as to why uh, regulations or why it's set up the way it is in Maine? Just because, I mean, you were there from ground zero in the industry. So... Um, unfortunately not enough people like we in some ways like we've had a lot of people involved politically um, in the beginning we did recently uh, people are hurting so bad like they don't have time to go to Augusta and like go to every hearing and like, and that's been happening over the years. Like, you know, first we're like trying to get everything established and then everyone's like pretty complacent and they're like, well, things are pretty good. Like, I'm not going to bother to go up there. And then like all these regulations get snuck through by regulators and by lobbyists for AU and other special interest groups. Um, so and now, you know, and now we're like, holy shit, like things are not going well. And um, uh, people need to go, people need to show up at the Capitol. And that's what needs to happen in every state. Because if you go up, I went to a hearing the other day, which the recodification of the entire medical laws in Maine. Eight people showed up to that hearing out of the whole state. So, and it's all, um, the, and the committee that was there and most of the other people that showed up, like they don't, they don't have an intimate understanding of, of running a cannabis business. So they're making regulations based on what they've learned from what's happening in other markets, what they're being told by lobbyists. Um, they don't know, they don't know, and they don't know any better. Like, even if they have, uh, like the best intentions for, uh, the medical program or the adult use program, they don't necessarily understand it enough to make the right moves to ensure that the programs are going to be sustainable and equitable for the people involved. So like the biggest takeaway I can give from that is if you're in a state where laws are being developed and it's not like they all happen at once, like this is something that happens. It's every year things change and every year it moves back or it moves forward or it moves sideways. And like, if, if you don't get involved and you don't go up there, if you have something to say, like whatever these regulators 
think is the right thing to do is what they're going to do. So if they don't know any better, they might do the wrong shit. And that's why we have like yeast and mold testing in Maine. Like it sounds like a good idea, but it's a really bad idea, but it's nobody's fault. It's well, I mean, I'm sure it's somebody's fault, but it's like, it's because not enough people that actually know what they're talking about get involved. The more people from the industry that really know what needs to happen, show up and speak their mind, the better any program is going to be. So as long you, as you people listen to you. Well, yeah. So wear so a how suit. Do, <laughs> how do you, uh, how do you get more of your peers to show up, you know, and try and make some actual change? Cause it sounds like you're fearful that the medical industry in Maine, as you know, it is going to go away within the next few years. What, you know, are you, what are you doing to kind of try and rally the troops, so to speak? Well, I'm, you know, personally, I'm going to the hearings and like through my social media, um, we're working to try to get more people involved. And I'm always telling people like, even if you can't go, you know, like watch the hearings, like they stream most of the hearings, like watch it, uh, write a letter uh, to your representative or Senator or whatever. Like they do, they do, they read the letters. And uh, I mean, honestly, that's how, that's how we've stayed relevant for as long as we have is that people have been involved. Um, and some of those people get like too involved and they get kind of sucked into the dark side, as I like to call it, where they'll, they, they get pulled in to the, how am I going to make money off of going up to, to be a lobbyist or whatever? And then you start, uh, compromising on your morals and things like that, and you end up being a mouthpiece for some of the more unsavory groups. So, average people need to need to take part in it. And I don't think that I don't think the medical program's necessarily going anywhere uh, unless we. unless everybody just keeps not doing anything. Uh, no, I understand how, uh, I guess, complacency or, I guess, defeat uh, can can uh, lead to a bad trajectory in terms of the industry. Um, I mean, one of the things for me is um, how early the or how nascent the industry is, right? There's not a lot of information out there, like we were talking about from the grow side, um, you know, the University of Tennessee Institute of Agriculture, they just came out and they just said, we need to study cannabis more. We need to study how it interacts with the body. We need to study um, how it's grown and the methods um, that uh, go on behind the scenes. Would you agree that that's part of the case too, is that for as long as it's been happening sort of behind the scenes, we haven't really put cannabis under the microscope to fully understand um, much about it? I think we do too much of that okay. already. I don't like these. Like, 
we don't need to fucking study it. Like people have been smoking cannabis for 10,000 years. Like we know, like you smoke it, it, it does what it does. Like we know, we know what it does like to your brain. We know what it does to your body. If we've got a pretty good idea. Um, it's already out of the box. Like we know that lung cancer and smoking kills 480,000 people in the U S every year and 7 million people worldwide, seven or 8 million worldwide a year. Um, we know, like we know what the carcinogens are. We know what the like 4,000 different chemicals in tobacco are. Um, we know that alcohol causes like six or eight different types of cancer now. But knowing that isn't going to change. Like we're not going to stop selling alcohol. We're not going to stop selling cigarettes. It's not going to happen. So True, like there's might... this assumed I mean, I... risk with all of these products. True. Isn't the idea, though, that if you understand that, it might work as a natural deterrence for people that might be on the fence, you know? I mean, uh, having that sort of information available, you know, helps people make a more informed decision. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm not fully opposed to it. I just think there's too much. Uh, I think there's still a lot of propaganda attached to it. And I think that a lot of these studies end up getting funded by like the uh nhia and like or what is it whatever national highway safety institute and then like the nida the national institute for drug abuse and uh they're looking for certain information when they're funding these studies and they're not looking for um non-objective information like they want uh they want whoever's doing the study to say like we need to stop this cannabis from spreading or whatever so i think that um i think that there are some good um like public outreach programs and public education programs happening regarding cannabis and i and i think that if you were to look at the data um youth use of cannabis is is kind of dropping off like the more adults get into it and like it becomes more mainstream like it's not um something to do to be defiant if it's something that's accepted by society so they're gonna go on to something else hopefully not like other drugs or whatever but i, th I think that um i think those studies can be can be good but can be bad no, no and i definitely, definitely think, think it's, it's important, important to you know at least, at least there's more it seems like there's more oversight as to um, whether or not those studies, studies and um, where they've received their funding. Um, studies, when they publish a paper, they say where they've received funding from, if it's come from anywhere, you know, outside of the school yeah. or academic institution. And I think it's important that you look at that type of information just go, so, you can, so you can kind of decide what kind of lens you're going to look at that information under. Um, right. 
when it, when comes, it comes to testing, testing so, so do you think, think have you heard of like the trust in testing certification, certification act and sc labs kind of came out with like universal, universal testing standards for cannabis and it would be up to the labs, labs to, to kind of get this certification, certification but do you feel, do you feel like, like as long as labs were all playing by the same rule, every lab, every lab, that that, that would even the playing field a little bit? Um. Well, there are there's ISO standards and there's the AOSCA or there's another group. Um, And then there's the CDC too, also certifies certain procedures. I I think that uh, having standards between all the labs throughout the country would be a huge step forward in testing. Um, do I think that's gonna happen soon? It's unlikely, but we, we're seeing it. Like in California, they're making an effort. I think that's what you were talking about, um, where they're they've had a lot of issues with lab shopping and like inflated THC results. You know, you got people like forty something percent THC, and like basically, there's labs you can walk in there, and they're like, "What do you want us to put for a percent of THC on there?" and like you know, whatever you want. And like the people have more money get to decide more what their package says. So the having those standards is incredibly important and it's going to eliminate lab shopping a lot. And it's going to increase public safety a lot because you won't be able to buy a clean test, but it also falls back on like what what procedures are approved um, or required and what that means because you know say they were to require the tempo method nationwide to measure total use and mold and that basically automatically fails 20% of all product in the country. That's not a good thing. Um, but if they can come up with better standards that better represent actual public safety, uh, and they can make those standard, then that's great. Um, you had mentioned remediation earlier. So are you opposed to remediation remediation? Are you opposed to all remediation efforts? Um, yes. Yeah. Is there uh, a particular reason why you're against remediation efforts i mean if you want to use x-ray for example x-ray has been used in the food industry for a long time um how come you're against remediating cannabis i think it's dishonest 
think that you should. I mean, I, I guess, you know, there's, I guess it's on a case by case basis. So, so you're saying if it's remediated product, it should be. If you've got something that's 300,000 CFU aspergillus and it's literally garbage, it's garbage. Like you shouldn't be able to remediate that. So it's technically not containing that many CFU. If you've got something, so I guess, you know, so say for instance, in a, in a state where they're doing TYM total use and mold, and that's a requirement and Everything else about the product is great, but you're failing a test that's stupid. And the only way to get it to pass is to use remediation. Then I suppose, you know, I, I can see how it could be useful, but it's literally the only reason you end up needing to do it is because of poor standards and testing. Like if it's actually dangerous, um, like you lose, you throw it out. If it's, if it's, uh, if it's failing because of a, um, ill-advised testing procedure, then I guess, I guess it's appropriate, but it's also, again, I just don't think, I think it sucks that you would have to do that. Um, so, and I understand, like, it's used in other industries all the time. I think at least it should be something that's put on the package so you know that it's been remediated. Um, I think people deserve to know that. And, and especially stuff that's remediated with ozone is like really gross. It looks gross. It tastes gross. It smells gross. Um, it's the absolutely the cheapest way to do it. I mean, you're talking is two hundred thousand dollars for X-ray remediation machine that can do like five pounds at a time. Gamma radiation, it's radioactive, so it's it's very expensive and like and it's risky and like like they use in Canada and they have to have literally armed guards guarding the facility where they do the remediation. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm for it in certain circumstances, but I think that I think that it's too often used as a way to just like take crap and make it pass testing when it's crap. Gotcha. Well, I mean, isn't I mean, isn't that the biggest issue with testing is that um you know, you wind up I mean, uh you try to do anything that you can to save a crop because it's, you know, and we hear it from a lot of people in the industry, every grower, like, 
is kind of just getting by living crop to crop. You know, like uh, if they lose one, the business goes under. Yep. I don't know. I've thrown away a fair amount of crops. Not. And you've survived. It's not fun. Yeah. Barely. <laughs> uh, I don't have 200 I... grand for an x ray remediation machine either. Um, I know that we've taken a lot of your time, Jordan. I do really appreciate you um, taking the time. You know, before we get out of here, is there anything else? Uh, that you want to make sure the Cannabis Equipment News audience either knows about Royal River Botanicals, yourself, or things in Maine? Uh, I think it comes back to, I mean, there's two, my two biggest things that I want to convey to everyone is that testing is incredibly subjective and that if you don't understand the science, and what procedures are being used you don't you can't understand if the product's actually safe or not and and to that point like just because something is tested and it's on a shelf somewhere it doesn't mean that it's safe which doesn't build consumer confidence but but it is what it is like it can it can pass testing and then end up not passing testing later um so learn you know if it's something you care about and if it's something you're to base your purchase on uh maybe look into what your state's testing requirements are and and see I guess if you have a total use and mold requirement, understand that um, that's a bad, it's just a bad test. Um, and it comes down, my, my, my belief is uh, you're better off getting your product from a farmer that you know personally and trust if you have that luxury. And that's, that's one of the great things about Maine is like, we have these relationships with our patients and we're small. It's only a million people in the whole state. So like a lot of people literally know the people whose flower they're smoking personally. And that's the best way to get the safest product. In my opinion, um, I think testing is secondary to that. Well, I understand that just, oh, no, sorry. I understand that because when it comes to purchasing food, you know, I feel like if I have a personal relationship with the farmer, I feel better about that product because I know how they've raised or grown that product. Um, did you find yourself, were any of your customers coming to you with questions about some of this testing after, uh, you know, some of these reports started coming out about discrepancies with pesticides and mold uh, between medical and rec? Um, so we're almost entirely wholesale. So, um, and then the, the few customers that we sell direct to are like, they're really great customers. They know, like, we're not going to do them dirty or whatever. Uh, but a lot of the people 
who I know who have stores, there has been fallout because of that. And there's been a big drop in consumer confidence because of it. Um, and that's one of the reasons I'm here today is to try to like re-bolster that consumer confidence because it's just like not necessarily not necessarily the right information going around about this. Oh. No. Well, understandable. And again, thank you very much for taking the time. And, you know, as things change in Maine and as you evolve at Royal River Botanicals, you know, please keep in touch. We'd love to hear more about your story and see how things are progressing. Thanks. And then the last thing I want to say is definitely whether you're a, a cannabis business, potential cannabis business, cannabis consumer, cannabis enthusiast, like get involved in your local government and, and let them know like what you want what, and like what you want things to look like. Cause if you don't tell them, somebody else is going to tell them what they want and they're going to do that. I think that is an excellent point as well. And even, you know, I'm in Wisconsin, I'm in a completely prohibitive, uh, <clears throat> prohibition state and it's, important to keep that message coming across because people do surveys and they understand that there's X amount of consumer confidence or uh, demand for legalization, but uh, you need to fight for the industry you want and you need to shape it. So that way you can have it in the way you, and uh, the way you want it. For sure. All right. Well, again, Jordan, thank you very much for the insight. I really do appreciate it. And I hope we get a chance to do it again soon. Likewise. Well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. For Jordan Smith, owner of Royal River Botanicals in Maine, I'm David Banty. This is the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast, and we'll see you next week.